0: Good morning. So we'll be reading uh, today from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 3 through 14. If you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's page 978, and I think there's also a smaller version where it's page 919. Ephesians 5, 3 to 14. has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, and walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord,
1: As part of the sermon. Um, you, you might have noticed that sometimes I try to open with a story or a quote or a question or something like that, that might pique your interest in the particular topic that we're going to be covering, that the text covers on that particular uh, Sunday. Today I have no such story. I have no such quote. I just have one word for you. And if this does not do the trick, then I don't know what will. Today, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about sex. So, do I have your attention this morning? Buckle up. I'm glad that the live stream was finally unplugged today so mom and dad can't watch me do this now. Um, But seriously, uh, part of the problem, I think, for the modern Christian church is that we've shied away from talking about this stuff. We've shied away because we're embarrassed about the subject. Or maybe we're embarrassed about the Bible's position on the subject. Or maybe the issue has just gotten so complex today that we don't even know where to start. So we don't start. But listen, this is the next text that we're covering in God's beautiful, wonderful word. And we're going to get right after it. Uh, And just to put all my cards on the table, I want to let you know about a few assumptions that I bring into a text like this. First, the word of God is sufficient. God speaks on what he wants to He's silent on what he wants to be silent on. We're not here to speak when he doesn't speak or to be silent when he has spoken clearly. It just so happens that he has spoken clearly on sex from cover to cover. Second, the word of God is good. Psalm 119.68, the Lord is good and he does good. Being a Christian is going to require disagreeing with mainstream cultural norms. And it's best we come to terms with this now. And it's healthy when we realize that we don't need to convince the people around us that we are right in order to be justified in, in holding to what God has said. Here's how one author uh, frames God's goodness. He says, God loves sex. The first two commands recorded in the Bible are, have dominion over creation and then be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1. In other words, rule the world and have lots of sex, not a bad day at the office. Whoever said God was some cosmic killjoy... God created sex and declared it to be good. Today, we're going to try to understand this good word from God and apply it to our very complicated lives and culture. Moving on. Number three, the Son of God was a fully human sexual being. To put it crudely, Jesus had armpit hair. He had male hormones. He had a Y chromosome, and so on. Well, why does this matter? Because as the scriptures unfold, we learn that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and yet remained perfect. This means that there were temptations to lust presented to Jesus. And every time, every single time he embraced the joy of obedience instead of the poison of lust. There's hope in there for all of us because when we do fail, fail like we will fail, There's a perfect substitute who will stand up to the Father in our place and offer his fidelity in place of our infidelity. Fourth, fourth assumption I bring into a text like this. The people of God have an established record of consensus on the Christian sexual ethic. So we live in an age of biblical gymnastics where folks who call themselves Christians but don't like what Jesus teaches about sex are trying to rationalize their own sexual preferences By twisting the words of Scripture to contort around their desires. But the biblical teaching on this for thousands of years has not wavered. It is what it is. It's pretty simple, really. Not always easy. Very challenging for some of us and how we are wired. But God's word is clear on this issue. There's even consensus among unbelievers that this is Christianity's historic stance. So Lewis Crompton, who is a gay man and one of the pioneers of queer studies, argued in his book, Homosexuality and Civilization, that there is no room for reinterpreting the New Testament on this issue. So here's what this gay man, non-Christian, says, "'Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period employ the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances.'" And to that, I just add any kind of sexual sin outside, outside the bounds of scriptures. So this is not a sermon on homosexuality. It's not about that. Uh, I only highlight this to say that it's not just Christians who interpret the scriptures in a very narrow way. Fifth, every child of God struggles. The word of God is sufficient. The word of God is good. The son of God was a sexual being. The people of God have a record. And every child of God struggles. Every Christian is a struggling Christian. We say it often, but it bears repeating. It is okay to not be okay. None of us in here are okay. You know it deep down in your heart. You don't have to pretend here. It is normal to struggle. It is normal to struggle with sexual sin, be it temptations toward heterosexual sins or same-sex attraction or, or anything else. I'd want a morning like this to free you to come into the light with hidden sins or inclinations, knowing that you'll be met with legit grace and understanding, and we will gladly, joyfully put you in a position to be helped. You're not alone, but you shouldn't try going it alone either. Dietrich Bonhoeffer so helpful here. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. So we just say that to say, we are here for you. We will team you up with someone who will fight for you and who will fight with you. None of us are designed for solo flight. We can all walk and limp together. Here's what J.C. Ryle said. Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock, yet he bears with them all. And cast none away. Happy is that Christian who has learned to do likewise with his brethren. So can we learn to treat each other this way? Like Jesus treats us. With truth and with patient grace. No matter how incomprehensible you think that person's sin is. Because guess what? Your sin is probably just as incomprehensible to them. Every Christian is a struggling Christian. Sixth and final assumption going into this. The grace of God is fully sufficient to deal with our sexual sin, our sexual brokenness, even the, our sinful pasts. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin has written helpfully on this. She says, If we come as broken sinners, we are tenderly embraced. Indeed, while Jesus' con- uh, condemnation of sexual sin is terrifying, his consistent welcome of repentant sexual sinners is equally shocking. Take that to heart, Sinners. All of us in here have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No matter how far down the path you've walked of sexual sin, there is grace for you, forgiveness for you, and a warm embrace from the Father for you through faith in Jesus. But while it is normal to struggle, it's a part of our human brokenness. Uh, God graciously and mercifully covers our sin, the Bible is still very clear in calling us to eradicate sexual sin from our lives with like this reckless abandon. It's one thing to struggle and fall and quite another thing to call sin good and wrongdoing righteousness. As Christians, we must strive to live in line with the creator's intentions. And so what are the creator's intentions for marriage and sex. Here it is. The Bible's clear teaching from cover to cover is that human sexuality is to be experienced exclusively within the constraints and covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman. Maybe here's another shorter way of saying the same thing. For Christians, opposite-sex marriage is set apart as the only place for sexual intimacy. Any sexual pursuit that falls outside of these boundaries that you see on screen behind me is against God's good law. So from softcore porn, to a perverted thought life, to hookup culture, to sex before marriage with a girlfriend, to an emotional affair, to a one-night stand, to an illicit affair to homosexuality and everything in between. Anything like that that falls out of God's definition, God describes as darkness in our text today. And that's why Paul uses three different terms there that you see in verse 3. We're not going to get into each of the specific details about each of the specific definitions uh, that you see there in verse 3, but trust me when I say that those terms cover the gambit of sexual sin that would fall outside of the narrow boundaries of that definition. All of this stuff, Paul, by the Spirit, calls darkness. You see it there in verse 8? That's the summary of all the sexual infidelity that Paul teases out there in verses 3 to 7. He equates it with darkness. Now, I can imagine in a room this size uh, that there would probably be a range of responses in this room to the Bible's teaching on sex. But I imagine you'll probably fit in one of these four categories. Maybe not neatly in one, maybe you straddle one or the other, but these four categories. First, confident believer. If you're a confident believer, you're confident in God's words, uh, in his presentation of its sexual ethic. You don't doubt its goodness. You don't doubt its rationality or its reason. You're just confident. Come hell or high water, you're here for it because it's in God's word. Second, maybe you're an anxious believer. You, you approach the issue of sexuality, be it heterosexuality or homosexuality or whatever, maybe a little bit like you'd watch your kids ride their bikes with no hands. It makes you wince just a little bit. You're convinced of the Bible's teaching, and yet when you look around at the rising tide of our anti-God anti-rule, anything-goes culture, you feel a little bit anxious about how it's all going to play out. Third, sincere struggler. You think you hold to the Bible, but to be honest, in the last five or ten years, you've really begun to doubt the Bible's sexual ethic is either A, good, B, reasonable, or C, loving. You're just feeling torn right now. Maybe you grew up pretty traditionally, but you're finding it hard to stand up to the riptide that's coming after us as orthodox Christians. And frankly, you're, not, you're just not sure if it's worth standing against the tide or laying down and just letting it take you where it leads. There's a lot of questions without answers for you right now. You want to hold on, but you feel your grip loosening ever so slightly. Or fourth category, maybe you're a confident advocate Maybe some of you don't even find yourself inside of a Christian circle at all. You're open to just about anything. You would willingly and actively distance yourself from the traditional Orthodox Christian view on marriage and sex. Maybe you even think that we're just a bunch of self-righteous bigots this morning, I don't know. Whatever category you find yourself in this morning, I'm really thankful that you're here. And I hope this morning, no matter what category category you're in will challenge you, intrigue you, encourage you. If you're not a Christian, I would want to intrigue you just a little bit this morning. If you're new to Christianity or you're in investigation mode, I want to leave you feeling a little bit like when you watch an amazing trailer right before your movie at the theater. It just hooks you. There is enough intrigue and excitement there that you just know you want to come back and see that movie when it finally hits the big screen. Uh, we went and saw a movie recently, and do you know what my favorite trailer was? I'm not even lying to you about this, but one thing I thought about when I was uh, preparing is that since we no longer offer live stream, I can't be held accountable for this because no one will ever know if I don't say it out loud. So this. This is the movie, I'm just going to show you a picture that I was uh, really excited about coming to the theater and seeing. If you're listening on the recording, I'm sorry, you should have been here. Um, The trailer for this movie was the single one I knew I wanted to come back and see. Hate me if you will, rip my man card from me if you must, but it's true. If any of y'all are free on April 29th to come with me, we we could rent the whole place out, man. But what's the whole point of movie trailers? It's to get you hooked, to get you intrigued about the whole thing. So listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope today leaves you a little bit more intrigued about God's good plan for sex. I hope you leave knowing that he's totally good and at least a little bit intrigued to come back for a little bit more. If you are a Christian, I want by God's grace and by his spirit and through his word to stir up confidence in you that this news about sex is indeed good news from a good father. I hope you come to greater clarity and conviction this morning. I hope you leave with a little bit more confidence in the goodness of this old-fashioned Christian teaching. One more caveat before moving forward. I'd like to go a minute just on some questions like this. Aren't these just useless, aimless, ultimately meaningless rules for rule's sake? Why is there even a sexual ethic, a sexual standard? Who gets to set it, and why do they get to set it? In the end, does it really matter who I sleep with and when? Why can't it just be that whatever pleases me is fine and private as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else? If that's the way that you feel today, could I just press on you just a little bit? If God's standard for sexuality is not your standard, what is your standard and why? At the end of the day, for all of us, Christian or not, there are things that we feel are out of bounds and in bounds when it comes to sex- sexuality, sexuality. But who gets to decide that for you? And why are they the standard? What if someone is to the left of your position, Which one of you is right and which one of you is wrong? So my argument this morning is going to be to run to the one who created this whole thing in the first place and get his take on it. He is the subject matter expert. He's a good God who created this good thing for his good purposes, and he's given us good, healthy boundaries to protect the goodness of it. So I sat down this last week to lead my family in family worship this last Tuesday, And we've just started this new book uh, right here. It's called The Biggest Story Bible Storybook. I don't know how many times you can put um, the word story in in the title of your story, but at least twice, apparently. The Biggest Story Bible Storybook. Uh, I totally recommend it if you're looking for something new uh, and fresh to do with your family. Uh, The author, though, uh, when I was reading this last week, he was talking about the fall. uh, When sin first entered the world, he says this. Never trust a snake. Sometime after the beginning that began so well, everything began to fall apart. It all started one day when a snake slithered up to Eve. Did God actually say? See, God had put this special tree in the middle of the garden. It was a testing tree, an off-limits tree. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God told Adam to not eat of it. The problem wasn't knowledge itself. God wanted the man and the woman to learn and grow and do things in the world. The problem was thinking that we get to decide what is right and wrong. That's what the tree stood for, God's authority to call the shots. But that's what Satan hates about God. And as it turns out, that's what a lot of people hate about God, people hate about God too. We like to do things our way. We like to be the boss of ourselves We like to be the boss of other people. We even like to be the boss of God. So Eve doubted God and believed the serpent. She thought the devil was on her side and God was against her. She thought the snake was sweet and God's commands were bitter. But when Adam and Eve ate the fruit from the off-limits tree, they quickly learned that it never pays to go against God's way. This is really what's at stake in our text this morning, Trinity, If we listen more closely to the world than we do to the word, we'll be tempted like Eve, like Adam, to believe the devil wants the best for us and God is just sitting around waiting to bust on us. We must not fall into this trap like Adam and Eve. So since God is the creator of all things, he is the owner of everything. And it just so happens, as the owner and the creator, he gives us the inside scoop on what the whole point of marriage and sex is In the end anyway. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. The origin story of marriage and how that should impact how we operate in our homes. Origin stories matter because by telling us a story of the past, they untangle the experience of the present. Telling marriages origin story from the past will help us untangle how to best experience it in the present. Origin stories really matter. Batman is a dark and brooding character because he saw his parents murdered when he was a child. The Joker is like he is because he was mocked relentlessly as a child. In a similar way, marriage and sex are protected with boundaries because of their origin story, the picture that they were designed to show the world. Here's another example. If you've ever watched the Broadway show Wicked, anybody seen Wicked before? Nice. One of my faves. Uh, it tells the origin story of the Wicked Witch of the West. And I promise you, if you watch the play, you will never hate her, at least in the same way that you hated her before. Not the least of which she can sing like mad uh, in the play. But anyway, you will empathize with her because the author of the play tinkers with her origin story. That's the kind of dumb thing about it. A like hundred years later, after the Wizard of Oz came out, someone wanted to reimagine how the Wicked Witch of the West became wicked. Ultimately, the playwright of Wicked wanted to persuade us that she wasn't really all that wicked. The problem, though, was that he was not the original author. I really enjoyed the play, but it was kind of unfair for him to rewrite a character, a central character, to his own liking. To the original author, the witch wasn't just misunderstood and mistreated. She was evil. She was the wicked witch of the West. I only say that to say that we need to be careful not to write the origin story of marriage and sex in our own image and to flex it around our own desires and to flex it around our own culture that we're living in right now. We are not the authors of this beautiful thing called marriage. God is, and we ought to let God be God. Marriage and sex, in the ultimate sense, aren't even about you. They're about the gospel that saved you. Maybe you remember this from a few weeks ago. When God created man and woman and ordained the union of marriage and sex, he intentionally patterned them after the relationship between Jesus and the church. Jesus is groom, church is bride. So for thousands of years, marriage and sex were a mystery waiting to be unfolded. Their origin story contained and concealed a meaning far greater than what we see on the outside. Baked into the very first marriage between Adam and Eve was this mysterious, cosmic, redemptive reality that Jesus the groom would marry the church, his bride, and redeem her from certain destruction. And then they would share this intimate connection forever. Therefore, God's greatest goal in your marriage and sex life and mine is that it would be a picture of the intimate relationship between Christ the groom and the church the bride. So marriage in its ultimate sense, isn't even about you. It's about the gospel that saved you. We don't get to rewrite the origin story for marriage. We must not reimagine it to contort it to what we want it to be. Marriage's whole purpose is to show the world a sneak peek of the ultimate marriage in history. Jesus the groom marrying the church his bride. How dare we try to rewrite that? So let's not get this twisted. Red-blooded, baby-making, heterosexual marriage is not the goal of the Christian life. Jesus is the goal of the Christian life. If you are single and struggling with your singleness this morning, hold to this. If you are same-sex attracted, hold to this. If your marriage is souring even as I speak, first get some help and then hold to this. Here's how one commentator describes this concept. She says, Marriage is a temporary state designed to point to a greater reality. At the resurrection, no one who has chosen Jesus over sinful sexual fulfillment will have missed out. Compared with that relationship, human marriage will seem like a toy toy car next to a Tesla or a kiss on an envelope versus a lover's embrace. I love that. So please don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not preaching this message because I'm some kind of sexual bigot who does not understand how two women or two men could want each other. And I'm not preaching this truth because I can't possibly fathom how a heterosexual affair could flare up at work with a coworker. I preach this because I believe in a greater truth, a mystery, a good God beneath all of this. And I believe He has your best interests at heart, always even if you cannot fully grasp it right now. The greater truth that undergirds sex in marriage is that they are whispers of something and someone even greater, even better. Good marriages should hold to this. Stinky marriages should be refreshed by this. And single brothers and sisters should find comfort in this. At best, marriage is meant to leave us wanting more. It is a gateway drug to a far more fulfilling relationship with Jesus. And why do I bring all of this up? Before we even get to the text, you're all sweating and nervous right now. You should be. Why take the time to trace out this thread? Mostly because I want to demonstrate that the idea that opposite-sex marriage is set apart as the only place for sexual intimacy, that idea didn't originate in some culture or period of history or religious tradition, As opposed to popular opinion, it wasn't created by homophobic, patriarchal men to position themselves to rule a male-dominated heterosexual world. Opposite-sex marriage as the only place for sexual intimacy was established before sin ever even warped our relationships. It was God's way of setting up his world. Okay, that's the foundation. With all that as our foundation and background, let's briefly wade into our text today. Number one, verses three to seven, eliminate darkness from your life. Eliminate darkness from your life. The first and most obvious call here is to eliminate the darkness of sexual disobedience from our lives, to eradicate it completely. Paul is back to his walk metaphor here. We've talked about this a thousand times uh, as we've walked through Ephesians together. Do you see it all the way down there at the end of verse eight? He says, walk as children of light. Well, the obvious opposite of that is don't walk in the dark. And remember, darkness here is in reference to sexual sin. As we've circled around this walk metaphor in recent months, we've talked extensively about its implications. Walk just means to live. So that's the call here. Don't live in darkness. Don't walk in darkness. Remember, we all have a gate, right? Some of us walk with our toes pointed in, right? Some of us are walking around with our toes pointed out. I told you about when I flopped my wrist when I played in junior high basketball until I was confronted with it on video and very embarrassed and stopped flopping my wrist. We all have a different gait, G-A-I-T, gait, a way that we walk. Uh, In the same way, each of us has a spiritual gait, as it were, a way that we live. And the call here is for us to eliminate the limp of sexual sin from our walk, to stop living in the dark, If your kids are anything like mine, or if they're out of the home, if they were anything like mine, they have a knack for leaving Legos in the most precarious of places. And somehow, at night, it seems like these Legos take on a life of their own, like those toys from Toy Story. They all come out at night, when the lights are off, and, of course, when I am barefoot, and when I need to quickly run into their room to solve some sort of problem in the fog of sleep. That is a dangerous situation right there, if there are Legos all over the floor. If you're anything like me too, you have the spiritual gift of finding those Legos with your feet. There is danger in the dark, and the call here is to remove all sorts of things that cause pain. Namely here, it's it's sexual sin. That's the language there in verse 3. These kinds of sins shouldn't even be named among us, Paul says. We shouldn't engage in any kind of behavior that brings sexual fulfillment outside marriage as God defines it but it's even more intense than that. And I think this might be the hardest part for some of us living in modern-day America. We live in a culture that not only accepts and condones and then promotes all kinds of sexual sin, but somehow it's become the punchline of every other joke in sitcoms or movies. And this is where it comes in and seduces us, I think. They get us to laugh at it, and slowly, so slowly... It desensitizes us and gradually we begin to accept the casual sex or the homosexual joke or the humorous off-color remark as normal and funny, dare I say good, which is why there's an additional call here. First and maybe most obviously, don't live in the dark don't participate in sexual activity outside of God's best for us. As a reminder, here it is. This is the definition we're working with. The Bible's clear teaching from cover to cover is that human sexuality is to be experienced within the constraint and covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman. But the Spirit wants to take even more ground in your heart. Don't live in the dark and don't shrug at the dark. Don't shrug it off. Sure, don't live in these certain ways, but also don't make light of them. Don't Laugh at them. Don't speak of them flippantly. Verse 4, look at it. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. That is the danger that we're talking about. Crude joking over time subtly lures us toward an unwise acceptance. So it's not just our actions that Paul is concerned with, but also our words and the words that we routinely let seep into our souls most often through some form of media, be it social media or Netflix or online magazines or whatever. Paul calls the actions outside of our definition out of place. You can see it there in verse 4. But when Satan can get us to laugh at stuff, he's halfway there with us. When we're laughing at sin, we're shrugging at the Savior. We shouldn't laugh at or be entertained by the things that Jesus died for. We shouldn't laugh at or be entertained by the things that Jesus died to pay for graciously and mercifully. Why shouldn't we shrug these things off? Oh, because brothers and sisters, there is too much cost here. The gravity is turned all the way up. This is not a joke to Jesus. Look at verse 5. For you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Whoa, no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ? It's no joke because of what marriage and sex represents. Nothing less than the soul-saving gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest and the holiest and the best marriage ever, Jesus the groom with the church his bride. This is why scripture speaks with so much weight, because this gospel picture is what's at stake. One commentator frames this well. No one can listen to Jesus and not be shocked, offended, and broken by his stance on sexual sin. She says, it's Rebecca McLaughlin again. She says, we cannot read the Bible and not be offended, condemned even. Jesus' condemn- uh, condemnation of sexual sin is terrifying. Paul is saying that those among us who, can't, who just cannot help ourselves when it comes to sexual temptation... Those of us who can't who just can't help but laugh at the dirty jokes with coworkers in the office or on the TV. Those of us who are pretty disinterested in God's definition of sexual fidelity. Those of us who are like that have no inheritance in the kingdom. This should scare the hell out of us. I mean it. Don't be seduced by our culture. Don't be deceived by our culture. That has so reduced the wonder and the weight of sex to almost nothing. They're trying to deceive us with empty words. But it's because of these kinds of things that the wrath of God is going to rain down. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. How empty is Netflix? How empty is social media? They've made a mockery of it. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There is too much at stake in your eternity to shrug off sexual sin in your life. Please, for the love of God and for the fear of hell, stand against the fragile, thin, unserious, unsanctified vision of sex that our world has today. It is so much richer and denser and glorious, and they give it credit for it. And God, in His kindness, wants that for you. Don't trivialize it with porn or fantasy or sex outside of marriage. Don't ever trust a snake. Satan is twisting our thoughts. Don't let him come back to the subject matter expert. He says, Satan says, this sex thing is not special, it's commonplace. It's not a big deal everyone is doing it but God's plans for sex are so much richer come to the light walk in the light that's the second point today and the final point eliminate darkness from your life illuminate darkness with your light Paul says that at one time we all walked in the darkness but now we are light so if darkness is sexual sin then light must be sexual faithfulness he says we are light you see it there in verse 8 He didn't just say, be the light. He says, we are the light. And the call here is to to live up to that standard of objective reality. In fact, this is just the story of our lives as Christians, period. To become subjectively what we are objectively. This is the Christian life. Becoming what you already are in Christ. Becoming what you already are. Here's what I mean. The Christian call to sexual faithfulness is a call to the children of light to be what you already are in Christ. And what are you already in Jesus? A sexually faithful Christian. This is such a transformative idea for us. It's absolutely critical if you want to live with joy and freedom as a Christian. So we're not striving for something that is unattainable. We're striving for something that has been done for us and gifted to us in Jesus. His sexual faithfulness is yours through faith. I'm not saying... For example, maybe you're in here today and you struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm not saying that if you just believe this hard enough, you're going to feel differently. God may grant you relief or he may not. I don't know. But what should keep you going, whether you struggle with heterosexual sin or homosexual sin or both, what should keep you going as a Christian is that Jesus' faithfulness is yours through faith. So that when God looks at you, he sees the faithfulness of Jesus and the fidelity of Jesus, not your unfaithfulness and your infidelity, by faith through Jesus. You are not left to do this alone. You are called to live out of this reality that Jesus' identity is yours. You are light in the Lord. Um, Let me give you two examples of what I'm talking about very briefly here. Look uh, Look back at Ephesians 4 and then verse 32. It says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So as uh, uh, a Christian call to forgive does not say forgive in order to earn the forgiveness of God, it says forgive because you've been forgiven by God. Here's another example, just from our text today in verse 8. It says, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So look, it does not say be the light of the world so that you can become children of light. It says you are light in the Lord. Walk like what you already are. This is the Christian life, becoming What you already are in Christ. And Paul continues there in verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Paul calls goodness the fruit of light. We are light. The fruit of light because it grows naturally out of light. Orange fruit comes from an orange tree because of what the tree is. An orange tree, right? And the point is the same for us. Christian living is not becoming a Christian tree. You already are a tree in Christ. Christian living is bearing fruit. The Christian life is essentially letting the fruit show what the tree is like. Letting the fruit show how we live what the tree is like who we are. So what does the fruit of your life demonstrate about the tree of your life? What does the fruit of your life demonstrate about the tree of your life? What kind of fruit are you bearing? The plain meaning here is that increasingly over the course of a lifetime, we should more and more and more bear the fruit of light and not of darkness, of sexual faithfulness and not sexual sinfulness. Thankfully, Paul gives us one specific practical weapon here to help us with this. And we'll close with this. Gratefulness illuminates darkness. Gratefulness illuminates the darkness. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, in its place, let there be thanksgiving. Now, think about the strategy here. Would you, if you're writing Ephesians to a group of people, would you have chosen gratitude as the opposite of all these kinds of sexual and verbal sins? Why is gratefulness, thankfulness, the weapon that Paul calls on us to use to fight against sexual temptation? Why doesn't he say... Get you an accountability partner. Get that software on your computer that limits those sorts of sites that you can access. Why is it gratefulness? Here's why. Our sexual sin is always fueled by a deep, discontented craving for something that God has forbidden. But if you are overflowing with gratitude to God, then your mind is not being dominated and driven by discontentment at what you have been denied. Gratitude is what you express when you believe God is for you and not against you, gratefulness happens when you believe that He gives you only what is good for you and withholds no good thing from you, single or married. So just test yourself with this. When your heart is overflowing with gratitude to God, are you clicking that illicit link or hooking up with that coworker? No. So the next time you are assaulted by temptation, Thank God for redeeming you through prayer, through song, and watch the temptation in that moment melt away by God's grace. Thanksgiving takes the focus off of ourselves and puts it on to God. Instead of me, 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 it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And now Paul unveils the target that he's been aiming at this whole time. So we are two seconds away from this arrow hitting the target, okay? Hang with me. Look at verse 14. And you'll see the rich reason for all of this. We as Christians are called to illuminate and expose the darkness of this world for the salvation of this world. Illuminate the darkness of this world for the salvation of the world. We're not really sure where that quote comes from in verse 14. It seems like it was probably one of the quotes, uh, uh, a quote from one of the worship songs of the day. Maybe it was like Chris Tomlin's ancient ancestor, I don't know. Um, But verse 14 there, it says, Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's probably not how it went, but... um, (laughs) It's probably from worship. Oh, boy. Um, In God's providence, we are Christ's light for this world and in this world. Now, listen. I want you to contrast a flashlight with a lighthouse for a second. We are not shining our flashlights constantly in places we don't belong and just talking incessantly about how broken and perverse our world is with rolled eyes and exasperated gasps. That's not the call here, to be shining lights into everyone else's, onto everyone else's sin. It's not a flashlight. The call instead is to be a lighthouse. Lighthouses prevent shipwreck. That light exp- exposes the dangerous cliffs and keeps ships afloat and headed in their intended, to their intended destination. So our joyful, light-providing sexual fidelity should have the same effect on those around us. It should keep people from death. It should wake them up, like verse 14 says, to the beauty and wonder of their creator's good purposes for marriage and sex. This will invite the world into the safe harbor of the beautiful light that is Jesus Christ. Okay, concluding applications. Married brothers and sisters, be a lighthouse with your marriage. Be a lighthouse with your marriage. One way to apply this text is to keep your light burning so brightly that it shows the world God's way is good and right. If this is the case, isn't one application of this pretty obvious, if, if you can just put the dots together for me without me stating it out loud for us, okay? If you know what I mean, don't waste your afternoon this afternoon. Shine brightly in this world, if you know what I mean. Why is everybody so nervous? This is God's good gift, right? Good day at the office, like the guy said at the beginning. Don't withhold this weapon in your arsenal to show the world that Jesus is the way. you Still, I'm feeling really awkward right now. (laughs) Don't waste your afternoon. Brothers and sisters, there should be no hint of sexual immorality in our life. Don't live in darkness, don't shrug at the darkness, and don't be lured into laughing at the darkness. Third, brothers and sisters, you are not designed for solo flight. If you are caught up in sexual sin, there is hope and there is help. Come into the light with another member here or even a pastor If you are not caught up in sin, be a lighthouse for those who are liable to shipwreck. Married people, invite single people into your life and rhythms. Have them in for a meal or to watch a game together. Take them on vacation with you. Let's not let them flail in isolation. Brothers and sisters, every Christian is a struggling Christian. To the men and women who have failed in their marriage, maybe you failed before marriage. To the men and women who have lusted and sinned, brothers and sisters, Christ came for you. The cross is for you. Jesus came for the weak. Hold on to that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for standing in our place and being faithful in our place. Help us live up to the reality that you have already set for us. For the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen.